Hi everyone, welcome to Hitchcock University where you learn filmmaking from the masters. Uh, this class session we're going to get into Hitchcock's first American film, but this episode is going to go a little bit different, partially because of the film itself and partially because because I haven't had the prep time that I usually get for this. I've been running around in a thousand different directions, so if the quality of this one isn't quite as good as it has been in the past, I apologize. Hopefully we'll get back on track uh, next time. But let's, yeah, let's get into this. I'm going to spend a lot of time telling you about the story behind this film, and then we'll get into some of the more specific stylistic choices that Hitch made as a director. So before The Lady Vanishes, which we got into last time, Hitch had read a manuscript for a new Daphne du Maurier novel, which hadn't been published yet. And he really really liked it, and he wanted to adapt it, but he he wasn't able to afford the rights. And also a big-time American producer by the name of David O. Selznick was moving in for the rights as well. So Hitch just kind of let that one go. But then while making Lady Vanishes, the brother of David O. Selznick, Myron Selznick, helped Hitch negotiate a deal with David O. Selznick and his production company uh, so that Hitch would would then come to the States and start making movies. Now, Hitch had always kind of had his eye on Hollywood anyway, but for various reasons just didn't feel that it was time to leave yet. So, but now that he had a contract with a big-time American producer, it was time to go. And just to kind of give you a sense of how big a filmmaker and how big a name Hitch was at the time, the contract that he signed for was roughly... $40,000 salary. Now that doesn't sound like a ton, but if you put that in a calculator and and run the numbers adjusted for inflation, you end up with a number closer to $700,000, which is pretty good. And on top of that, David O. Selznick had succeeded in getting the rights to this Daphne du Maurier novel anyway. So he was hoping that then they'd be able to move on to that project, but Selznick had a different idea. Selznick first wanted him to do the Titanic. Selznick had bought a big boat that was going to stand in for the Titanic, had done all these things, really, really liked this project, and then it fell through and got shelved, which is usually what happens for, not not usually, but it happens quite a bit in, in Hollywood. This then freed Hitch up to do the project that he wanted to do in the first place, and that project is an adaptation of Daphne du Maurier's novel, Rebecca. It was a big-time seller at the time, and I'm going to give you, give you a brief synopsis of what it came out to be. It's the story of a young, lower-class middle woman who remains nameless in both the novel and the film, who marries a, an older but very wealthy widower named Maxim de Winter. However, just because she marries the man that she loves, who's far wealthier than she is, doesn't mean that her life turns out for the better. Uh, instead, she ends up being kind of haunted, both emotionally and metaphorically, not literally, by by the former Mrs. De Winter, Rebecca, the title character. And her presence just kind of hangs and looms over our, our heroine's newfound life. So Hitch moved to Hollywood and began working almost immediately. But Hitch was in for a surprise. He hadn't come across a producer who was like any other American producer at the time. Hollywood was still in, in what's now referred to as the studio system, where everyone was under contract. Actors, writers, directors of photography, directors, everyone was under contract, and they were all under contract to producers who ran the studios. And so the, stu the excuse me, and so 
the producers were really the ones who were in charge. And the only run-in that I can remember from my research that Hitch had had with a producer was with an executive who didn't want to release The Lodger. But obviously the, the movie did get released, so it really didn't matter. Selznick was, was definitely a producer of his era. He was very controlling and, and really was a filmmaker. Just to help you kind of understand how I, how I use that term and how actually really a lot of others use that term, is filmmaker doesn't mean director. Filmmaker means anyone who understands the medium of filmmaking. So a filmmaker could be an actor. I know Jack Nicholson has referred to himself as a filmmaker. Uh, it could be a producer. It could be an editor. It could be a director of photography. Anyone who understands the storytelling in that medium is a filmmaker. And a filmmaker could be in any one of the crafts of filmmaking. So you had two very strong filmmakers going kind of head-to-head in Alfred Hitchcock and David O. Selznick. So Hitch had an idea of how he wanted the film to go, but Selznick had a very different idea. And oftentimes those two visions would clash. But that doesn't mean that Selznick had bad ideas. But they did have different approaches. And it became very, very clear very early on how how these two visions were going to to butt heads quite often because it started right away with the script hitchcock and his writing and 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 the writers that he brought on board came up with a first draft pretty quickly and selznick immediately hated it and wanted it thrown out see we talked about how hitchcock preferred to do adaptations you take the basic idea and then make a movie out of it very loose adaptations, but Selznick wanted every adaptation he did to be incredibly faithful to the movie itself, or excuse me, to be incredibly faithful to the book. In fact, on any adaptation that he did, the opening titles would say, David O. Selznick's picturization of so-and-so's novel. I think that term picturization really captures how Selznick thought about adaptation. It was about taking everything in the book and making it a picture, instead of really taking the grains and the essence of a story and telling a good telling a good story in a different medium. Because his theory was that people who read the novel would be upset if you ended up changing it when you made it a film. And he's not wrong. I mean, we see that today, and that's part of the reason that I try to get Hitch's message out there so that people can understand that, well, there's two ways to do this. You can be faithful to the, to the book, or to the stage player, to the whatever. But it is a different medium, and so there is a different way to tell a similar story. But I, I do think Selznick had his finger on the pulse of the audience in a way that Hitch might not have. And considering the fact that Rebecca was such a popular book at the time, I think Selznick might have been right. So finally they get a script that Selznick can okay, and then they go into casting. And again, they have an issue. Hitch wants to cast a young actress by the name of Joan Fontaine. The problem was that Selznick wanted her sister, and her sister was a more well-known actress, you know, was considered more more bankable at the box office. Uh, but Hitch was was eventually able to talk his way into, into getting Joan the part. So for those of you keeping score at home, Selznick won, Hitch won. But the problems didn't stop there. See, then they go into shooting... And Selznick, being the filmmaker that he is, wants to have total control of the film. And it wasn't so much that he would tell Hitch which shots to take. It's just that he wanted 
to be able to make the movie how he wanted to in the editing room. But that's not how Hitchcock worked. Hitchcock, by the time they had ironed up the script, already had an idea of exactly the movie he wanted in his head. He knew what shot was going to go where. He knew exactly how he was going to shoot it. He understood the pacing of it. And it was all storyboarded, ready to go. But like I said, that's not how Selznick wanted to work. He didn't want this shot for this piece, this shot for this piece. He wanted coverage. You know, if you're shooting shooting a dialogue scene, you shoot a nice wide shot with the both characters in it, and then you go in for singles, you know, a punch into a medium shot on each, and then maybe a close-up on each for a certain part. And then you have the flexibility to edit it however you want, getting reactions and dialogue from both characters. But that's not how Hitch shot. He knew exactly where he wanted the camera to be at any given moment in the script. So that became an issue. Now, Hitch might be right here, at least to a certain extent, because we've talked about how, how Hitch felt that editing, that montage, was really pure cinema. This idea that, and, and, and let me back up so that we can kind of review a little bit of what we've already talked about. You remember the Kuleshov theory where you take a shot of, a, of someone looking at something, and then you cut to a shot of what they're looking at, and then you cut back to them. You've just created a situation there. You can easily understand that character. Even with a totally blank expression, if you cut from a character to a bowl of soup and then back to them with that same blank expression, they're hungry. Without the actor emoting anything, you can communicate to the audience what that actor's desire is or what that character's desire is. But if you change in the editing room what they're looking at, you've changed the character, at least in that moment. Or if you change the reactions, say say in one scene you've recorded an actor with a happy laughing expression and then with a very surprised and shock expression, and those fit certain moments in the script that the actor that, that the director directed those actors into, but then you flip them into different moments. You take the surprised reaction and put it somewhere else, and you take the laughing action and put it somewhere else. Well, now you've just changed the character again. You've, you're, you're changing the story through editing. And I think that's something that a lot of people who aren't experienced at editing or, or haven't taken the time to really learn from editors miss out on, what, what you're not understanding. The editing is not just the assembly. It's the careful crafting of the story by taking piece A and juxtaposing it against piece B, you're filling in the story for the audience by choosing exactly where the camera, exactly what the audience gets to see at a given moment. If you don't cut back to the reaction shot, then that changes the scene. If you cut to a different reaction shot, that changes the scene. And Hitch felt that he had already planned out the movie, so why, why, should, why should we have to change it? And this led to issues. Selznick, Selznick told Hitch there was going to be no reshoots. didn't matter if the film was scratched or if there was a, a hair in the gate or, or anything. didn't matter. No reshoots whatsoever. Well, you know, that shot might not even be in the movie anyway. But based on the way Hitch planned out his movies, that was impossible. You couldn't mess up. You couldn't have a problem and then not go back and fix it because then you'd ruin the entire sequence. Even on the days of shooting, Hitch couldn't even get a shot off because Selznick would have to come down and okay the final rehearsal, and then they could shoot. 
Selznick really wanted his hand in everything. He let the director do most of the work, and then he would come in and okay it, put his stamp of approval on it. And that's just how things went then. Now, thankfully, as filming went on, Selznick became more and more consumed with another project that he was producing, a movie you might have heard with called Gone with the Wind. (laughs) So that kind of freed Hitchcock up a little bit. Selznick was still involved, but not nearly to the extent that he had started out. Now, Hitch told Truffaut that Rebecca wasn't really a true Hitchcock picture. He said it was really a novelette. And a lot of that has to do with the story, with the way adapted or really picturized, as Selznick would have said. However, it did garner two Oscars for two Oscars, one for Best Picture and one for Best Cinematography in the black and white category. At that time, some movies were done black and white, some movies were done in color, so certain awards got divided into two categories. There's cinematography, black and white, cinematography, color. This one, cinematography, black and white, since it was shot in black and white. Go figure. And then they also had another nine nominations, including Laurence Olivier for Best Actor, Joan Fontaine for Best Actress. Oh, and then also Hitch got his first of five nominations for Best Directing. Now, Hitch never won Best Director which I think when we look back on that now, that was probably a mistake. But nonetheless, he did get nominated five times. This was his first one. So his first American film gets him his first Oscar nomination. He's also nominated for Best Editing, which I think is ironic, seeing how Hitch shot his movies in the first place. But it was also nominated for Best Screenplay. So let's think about this. Selznick wins Best Picture because that's how it went in those days. The producer won, well, even, even today, the producer wins the Best Picture award. The cinematography and the acting, specifically the casting of Joan Fontaine, which Hitch fought for, and then the directing of her, he was very, very careful with Joan and really, really worked incredibly hard with her on her performance. So obviously Joan Fontaine actually had to do the acting, but Hitch helped her get to where she needed to be. Where was I? Cinematography, acting, directing and editing. Those are all awards that I would never say that the technicians behind those or, or the, the craftsmen and women behind those shouldn't have won the awards. They didn't, they're they the ones who did the work. But Hitch oversaw all of those even more than David O. Selznick. So in my mind, in the battle for control, those awards go to Hitchcock. But Best Picture and Best Screenplay, those go to Selznick. Because remember, it was Selznick's idea to adapt the movie into the screenplay the way that they did. And he oversaw the picture in a way that even Hitchcock didn't. So in a sense, those words are really in a way kind of Selznick's if we're keeping score just between the two. Now, don't worry, all's not lost. Just because it was difficult for Hitch to work with Selznick doesn't mean that they didn't continue to work. And after this film, Selznick later said that Hitch was the only director he he would completely trust with a film. So there was a respect there. And there was a, there was a very strong working, working relationship that they were able to, to form because of this film. So despite the tense working environment and the clash of ideas, it looks like they both knew how to make a movie. And the collaboration actually ended up working for the benefit of them both. Now I want to take a second because I hope that anyone listening to this podcast... I hope everyone listening to this podcast uh, gets to work in a situation where they have to deal with collaboration, whether it's in filmmaking or in something else, in some other professional environment. The thing about collaboration is you might have really good ideas, but you need to listen to the other person because they might have good ideas too. And so sometimes you need to learn to take other people's good notes that they give you to make your work even better. 
Now, sometimes this doesn't work. I'm going to give you a very specific example from Rebecca. There is a scene at the end where there's a very large fire. I'm, I'm going to try to do this ambiguous enough so I don't give away any spoilers. There's a scene at the end of the film where there's a big fire. And Selznick came to Hitchcock and said, I got a great idea for that. What if the fire, the smoke from the fire, forms a big R in the sky, standing for Rebecca? Now, Hitch had the same reaction I had to that when I read that. Um, that's a really cheesy idea. It really is. Buddy was on to something. So Hitch went away, came back the next day, and he said, you know, David, I was thinking about that. And what if instead of the smoke forming an R, if we used Rebecca's bed sheets that would be embroidered with an R, and we could push in on the R as the, as the flames consume that? That makes a little bit more sense. <laughs> and Selznick simply said, I believe something to the effect of, oh, that could work too. See, they were willing to listen to each other, and they were willing to help make each other better. Sometimes when you're collaborating with someone, they're going to have a... They might not always have a good idea, but they might have an idea that they're on to something. That, 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 there's a grain in the idea that is actually worth it. And if you can figure out a way to work together to come up with the better answer, it only elevates everybody else's work. But the difficulty with collaboration is sometimes you, you have to pick which mountains you're going to die on. Because at the end of the day, especially when you're talking about the, the working relationship between Hitch and Selznick, Selznick cuts Hitch's checks. So you need to be careful which and figuring out which things are worth fighting for and which things really you can do without. Because if someone's cutting your checks, you do have somewhat of an obligation to listen to them and to do some things the way they want to have it done and to compromise or even give concession to that person. I see this all the time when I'm working on commercials. There's always a client and an ad agency, and there's always certain things that they want done. And the rest of us on the crew are looking around at each other like, that doesn't make any sense, but much like the customer is always right, in this case, the client is always right. Because unfortunately, they're cutting your checks. And while you may not like every idea that they have, there's some things that you might need to just let them have and let them realize that maybe that wasn't the best idea. And hopefully when they come back and call you again because you were so nice and congenial the first time, that <laughs> then you can say, you know, I like what we did there, but maybe we can do it better this time. That's my soapbox on collaboration. Now, Hitch was talking to Truffaut in a different interview than the one that I usually tell you guys about, where Truffaut asked him, I've noticed that in Rebecca, there's a very distinct change of style from your previous films. And he says, yes, absolutely, that's right. And one of the most notable pieces of this was brought out in an interview, actually with Peter Bogdanovich, who's a film historian and a filmmaker. He has a great movie uh, from way back in the day called Targets. It's the last movie the great Boris Karloff was ever in. I really recommend it. It's dark, so if you're not into that, then maybe you shouldn't watch it. But especially if you like film history and you know anything about Boris Karloff, I'd really recommend that movie. I'm going to get back to what we were supposed to be talking about, though. So uh, Peter Bogdanovich points out that there's a lot more dolly moves and, tra and long tracking shots instead of the typical montage that Hitch 
was known for and always emphasized, this idea of cutting. You get a piece here and you cut to the next piece. There's a lot of these long flowing shots. And a hitch told, told Bogdanovich that that was because they're moving around this big house. And the house is a character in this film. In fact, there were some subtle things that, that Hitch did to kind of actually characterize this house. One was Joan Fontaine is in this room in this house where there's no, there's no windows open. There's, nothing, there's no way for any wind or a draft to get in. But she says that she's cold. And so Hitch snuck in this little fan that would kind of blow her hair a little bit and kind of create a draft that couldn't have been there. But that's characterizing the house. It's giving this house this sort of supernatural element to it and and also, in a way, almost tying it back in with Rebecca, who's kind of haunting Joan Fontaine throughout the film in a sense. And then he told Truffaut that, that this giant house being treated as a character, he did something very interesting. What, what they intentionally did, and this is also in the book, but they really capture it in the film in a way uh, that's it's very profound, I feel like. they The house is incredibly isolated from everything else. We know there's a village nearby, and we don't really see it until late in the second act, and there's almost nobody there, nobody around these characters except for the characters that were there anyway, you know, the, the servants and etc. And this this house becomes so isolated that as the characters grow more and more helpless... We feel their isolation. They can't go to anyone for any help. There's, there's no one to seek out because the house is, is so far from everything. So they're so far from everything. They are alone. They have to deal with, with the world of this house on their own. There's no one else to help them. And getting back to those, those dolly moves and those long tracking shots, I do want to kind of paraphrase what Hitch told Peter Bogdanovich. He said, we did it because we're in this big house. But he also said that I don't think it's right. I think that's a direct quote. Um, and the audience should be looking at the characters, not noticing the moving camera. So what Hitch felt and what I was always taught was that if you're going to move the camera, you have to have a good reason for it. Whether you're following a character moving through the house, which is typically what they're doing in this movie, uh, or... or, or, or using it to create some kind of subtext to the scene or something like that. Now, there was another element that, that Hitch used. This one he told Truffaut. That also had to do with characterization. And the head housekeeper, Mrs. Danvers, seems to always be lurking about. And the story is told entirely from the perspective of our heroine, of Joan Fontaine's character, who, as I said before, doesn't have a name. She just becomes Mrs. De Winter when she gets married. That's it. And Mrs. Danvers is this lurking character who really took care of Rebecca and was the closest of all the servants to Rebecca. And she clearly doesn't like Joan Fontaine's character. And she's constantly sneaking up on her. So instead of what Hitch would usually do and give the audience the suspense of knowing that Mrs. Danvers was just around the corner or was on her way to the same room or whatever... She just keeps popping up, just boom, just Joan Fontaine turns around and there's Mrs. Danvers. And that was something that he tried to do as often and as consistently as possible. So we're going to continue this sort of change of style and this discussion that Hitch has now that we've entered the American period. From here on out, every movie Hitch did was in the States. 
but unfortunately, that's all I have for today, which is probably okay because we've, we've gone on long enough. Uh, I want to thank you all again for continuing to listen to, the, to this humble little show of mine. Again, if you want to reach out to me, I'm at HitchcockUniversity at gmail.com. Uh, Hitchcock University page on Facebook, Hitchcock underscore U as in university on Twitter, Hitch as in toe hitch, or Hitchcock underscore U on Instagram. I'm also on, uh, not Spotify, somebody else is on Spotify. I'm on SoundCloud, Google Play, uh, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, might be on iHeartRadio, iTunes, of course, uh, basically anywhere you can get a podcast. Uh, leave me a rating or a review. I'd really appreciate that. Tell your friends, anyone you know who might be interested. Uh, thanks again for coming, guys. I will see you all around next time. Thanks. <laughs>